Hey, it's not quite the DeLorean, but we're going back in time with a new podcast feed full of all my favorite interviews in the history of the Bill Simmons podcast. We're coming up on seven years now. I've had an unbelievable collection of athletes, celebrities, showrunners, directors, Matt Damon, Denzel Washington, Adam Sandler, Kevin Garnett, Shirley Theron, Tom Hanks, Bill Burr, Kevin Durant, Peyton Manning, The Undertaker, Eddie Vedder, Kyrie Irving. Yeah, he actually came on. Dave Grohl, Quavo, Barack Obama. I mean, what else can I tell you? I've had Al Pacino with Barry Levinson. I've had people like Steph Curry, Jason Bateman, John C. Riley, Jonah Hill. I could just, I could keep going and going. But wait, there's more. Whether it's your first time or you're planning on revisiting some of your favorites, make sure you head to BillSimmonsInterviews.TheRinger.com for the entire archive. You can sort by genre, year, and more to easily navigate all your favorite people. Follow the Bill Simmons podcast, The Interviews, on Spotify now. It's New York, New York, presented by FanDuel. Take a shot at betting the NBA with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub, filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100 Gambler or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. It's episode five. Welcome in. The captain. Postpod. Uh, the moments of euphoria. The moments of bliss. Uh, they were not present, Jacko, in this particular podcast. This was uh, not my favorite episode of the docuseries. This is probably 45 to 50 minutes of my life I want back. But aside from that, it's good to see your face. How are you doing? It's good to see you, too. I completely agree. This is the most I have watched uh, anything about 2004 in 18 years. And it's the most I will ever watch about it again in my life. Wow. So even though Bill from Los Angeles, you're a good buddy, you're a good pal. You refused to watch his 30 for 30 docuseries on the Red Sox. That was a no for you. No chance. No way. No how. Nope. I love Bill. But, He's but one you, of our best but friends, you, but I wouldn't but watch it. But you would it. sit nope. through this, though, because you're a trooper for this particular podcast, which we respect. That's it. I'm doing it for you, JJ. I figured I could take... Uh, it was 20 minutes of 2004, which was about 19 and a half minutes too long for me, but I, I soldiered on. I gritted my teeth. And I got through it because, you know, I figured it would be from the Jeter perspective, but I was curious about that. And because my loyalty to this podcast and my duty to Yankee Nation, such as it is that, yes, I sat through it. I took one for the team. Well, we appreciate that. And look, nobody needs a history lesson on what happened in 2004. We've been there. We've done that. We know the deal. But it is surreal, Jacko, to see in contrast 
how many things went right for the Yankees, right? Like Tony yeah. Tarasco and Jeffrey Mayer, Mark Langston and Tino Martinez at bat, Timo Perez in 2000. Like so many things went right for that group of Yankees. And then you look at those four games, and really, it's it's not even as much Game 7. Game 7 was over. It was done with. It was over before it even began. But in Game 4, in Game 5, in Game 6, how many little intricacies from Roberts barely getting in there to the Tony Clark ball bouncing over the fence or uh, Game 6, Bellhorn's home run going over the fence or the A-Rod slap play not getting over. Like, all of that stuff went against the Yankees, and I guess that's how you overcome 86 years of history. That's it. You got to have miracles like that, right? It was the perfect storm, you know? It's so many things had to go wrong for the Yankees and had to go right for the Red Sox. And, you know, for 86 years before that, everything had gone right for the Yankees, so I guess it was, you know, karma was due. Uh, you know, karma turned, and it was their time, and it was their turn. It was so painful to watch because... You know, they're they're winning game four with Mariano on the hill. And you'll I'll take my chance ninety-nine percent of the time with that. You know, it's a great spot to be in. You figure that's gonna do it. The greatest closer in the history of baseball, he's there against your rival that you've owned for 86 years. And Dave Roberts, you know, turns the tide. He he did it. He did his thing, and that was just a a cascade of horrible things that happened. And uh there we go. You went to game three, two thousand three. Did you go to any of these games in the massacre? Unfortunately, I did. I was there at game seven in 2004, live and in person. So I was at game six. So I leaving that building, game six, me and my dad looked at each other after Tony Clark struck out to Keith Folk, after the slap play, after everything that transpired in that game. I don't know if you felt this way because you were going in game seven. I looked at my dad. I said, they're dead. They're not. That's why the quote from Joel Sherman, uh, the Yankee official, said, yeah, I don't know how we're getting 27 outs in Game 7. Like, that was the way I felt. And you combine losing three in a row, and you combine everything that went on in the series. Did you actually go to Yankee Stadium in Game 7 thinking they're going to win? No. I I was so disgusted by by what had (laughs) transpired in Games 4, 5, and 6, and I was so mad after Game 6, so mad that I'm like, I'm not even going to watch game seven because you could just see it was a foregone conclusion. Everything was going in one direction. And then my buddy that I mentioned the other day, Ryan, who who had played with Bronson Arroyo, he calls me at work and he's like, I've got tickets for game seven. Let's go. He's like, the Yankees history, they could do it. And I fought with myself and I'm like, you know, they've been doing it for 86 years. Maybe there's a chance for magic. I'm going to kick myself if I wasn't there for the magic. So I we end up going to the game. We left late from Connecticut to go down there because I was at work. And then we left, got down there late, couldn't find a place to park by Yankee Stadium. It was all the garages were full. It was a madhouse. I end up parking somewhere along the East River. Some guys were behind a sawhorse who, who I gave $20 to, and they no more own that lot than I did. So I'm like, the Yankees are going to lose game seven and I'm going to get my car stolen. Like we're at the game. We, by the time we sat down, it was four nothing, I think, or six nothing. It was over from the beginning. I'm sitting in the Red Sox family section. So it's like a, the one celebratory area and I'm miserable. So we're just sitting there and it was just nine. In, you know, Kevin Brown was horrible. We're looking on my phone to find the train schedule because I'm figuring I'm going to have no car left and I'm going to have to take the train home to Connecticut. 
So it was a brutal, hor- I'm sure Red Sox fans that are watching this are fist pumping right now, knowing that not only did the Red Sox beat the curse, but I was there living nine, nine innings of misery with uh, in Red Sox, in a little corner of Red Sox Nation at Yankee Stadium, and I had to watch the Yankees lose in inglorious fashion live and in person. And it almost but felt I blame that my... Game 7, Jacko, more and more and more Red Sox fans felt like they were flooding the stadium. I, I like, yeah. maybe they were Yankee there fans and headed you just for the didn't exits. hear the Yankee fan, but like at the end of that game, it was like, it was like Fenway Park South, for goodness sakes. The only life in the stadium was when they brought in Pedro because they brought in Pedro yep. in relief and the Who's Your Daddy chant started and you had a little glimmer of hope that maybe we'll be able to get a hold of Pedro, but you could sense the magic was gone by that point. You know, it was it was over and done with. And happily, my car was there at the end. I don't know what it was, what kind of crimes it was involved in, but my car was there. So at least that was one silver lining in a gray cloud that I did not have to take the train home. My car was not stolen, so that was good. But I told you, know, you the other day that I, I blame myself for 2004 because for two reasons. One, I had gone to a game earlier in 2004 at Yankee Stadium. It might have even been a playoff game in the earlier rounds. I don't remember because I'm old. But leaving the stadium, there was a guy selling a shirt. And I bought a shirt and it said, Bucky, Boone, and the Babe. And I bought the shirt and I, was, I wore it for game one of the series in 2004 and the Yankees won. And then I'm like, I can't change this shirt. I got to roll with it. So I wore it again for game two. And then I wore it for game three. And I hadn't washed it because you'd want to wash away the luck. And then the Yankees win game three, 19 to eight or whatever, 18 to nine, whatever it was, some lopsided score. The Red Sox look dead as could be. I'm planning my World Series party. And I'm like, boy, this shirt's getting to be a little ripe now after wearing it for several oh, days. Oh, no, you I'm going to take, I'm going to like, I don't need it for game four. And I put it in the laundry and the rest is history. And I, I will never live that down. I blame myself. I, I ruined the luck. I ruined the karma. It's my fault. I should have rolled with the shirt one more day and I just didn't do it. And then um, history happened. There you go. So it's my fault. You got to keep that stuff smelly, dude. That's what it I boils know. down to. Lesson you, learned. Won't ever do it again. You can't mess with the karma. Um, nope. Totally. How about Jeter? And they mentioned this, and I remember it vividly in game five, even after game four, they're down. He hits this bases clearing triple against Pedro. And you could tell Jeter, who was usually pretty calm, but would show a little bit of emotion. He was super fired up, like a big slap, a big fist pump, a big let's go, the whole deal. That was a moment I still thought the Yankees were in great shape. I forgot up to Torrey, who had a terrible series. Terrible, terrible, terrible series. Yeah. Had Jeter bunt with yes. a runner on second. I totally blanked on that. Me and A-Rod too. ended up striking out. How do you right. take the bat out of Jeter's hands there in that spot? I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking. And I think the pressure maybe got to him too. And he's doing things they normally wouldn't do. It's the only thing I can explain it. You know, the the aura and the mystique or whatever that had gone the Yankees way. Everything, you know, everything went wrong. Everything went wrong. Tori, who was brilliant, you know. Four worlds, four rings, just the guy they needed in the 90s. And then it just, you know, he fell apart and they fell apart. It's inexcusable when you look back to have Jeter bunt there, just trying to be way too smart and just no sense. And and he's counting on A-Rod to come through in a big moment, which were few and far between, unfortunately, in his Yankee career. Well, and A-Rod was the man of the hour in the first three games of the series. Huge. And that was the narrative, right? A-Rod dominating the Finally. Red Sox. Yep. Yankees up three to nothing. Here we go again. This the trade that didn't trade happen, that and now he he's a Yankee. Had, right. Ends up going to New York, and now he's going to stick it right in our face, and right. the Yankees are going to go to the World Series. And then, of course, he symbolized 
by the final four games of the series and then the slap play. And I got to be honest, Jacko, looking back on it, as lame as it was, I don't hate it. I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't. he's like, in the, he's, you know, he had, a, he had a good answer in this thing, you know, where he's like, look, it was the heat of the moment. I'm trying to make something happen. He's like, I guess I should have just stood there and been tagged out. Yeah, what else happens there? That's what I'm you saying. Know? Like, it's embarrassing for him. It obviously looks terrible now after the fact. But, like, if he doesn't, all right, he gets tagged, then there's a runner on second and two outs. Okay. You know, the, yeah. And the interesting thing is, like, you know, it was a little bit of a bang-bang play. I wonder if he didn't, and it's another one of these things of history, if he didn't do the slap, he doesn't run out of the baseline. You know, the, I wonder if Arroyo bobbles it anyway, and, like, he's safe at first if he just runs hard to first, you know? He's he knows better than I do, obviously. So he's like, I would if I didn't do that, they just tag me out. But I don't know. Watching the replay on this for the thirty seconds or whatever they played it on the documentary, I'm like, you know, you run it out there, make him make a play. You know, he's got if he's got to catch the ball, he's got to step on the bag in the heat of the moment. There, I I don't know. That's another. It's you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. History is you know, alternative history. I guess is always interesting, but unfortunately, it is what it is. They brought this up, and I think it's so apropos, the difference between those 96 to 2000 Yankees and the teams that you saw after the fact, specifically 02, 03, 04. This idea that the group dynamic took the pressure off of the individual, and you saw in 2004 and you saw it in years after the fact until they won in 2009 that those teams didn't have that. Every individual felt like they had to be the guy and that pressure from A-Rod to Kevin Brown to Javi Vasquez to you give me the name the Yankees imported, that pressure was on full display every which way. And not just in this series, Jacko, but years after the fact too. Oh, no, they were they were ruined for years after that because, you know, it was first round exit after first round exit. There was no big moments until they brought in a new crop of guys in 2009, as I'm sure we'll see in future episodes, you know, the last last great hurrah for in terms of World Series. But, yeah, there's no question, you know, you had lost, you know, you lost the O'Neills of the world and the Brocious's and guys that maybe were not superstars at the time but did the little things and did the team things that were necessary. And maybe you're too reliant on the superstar. You have a guy like A-Rod who's a superstar player. He feels the need to do a thing like the slap play. You know, guys guys like O'Neal and Brocious would say, you know, next man up. And if I don't get on, the next guy will get a hit. And maybe it was A-Rod's like, I got to do it on the guy. And, you know, I don't know to what extent that got in their psyche or it was just, you know, the fates or whatever. But, yeah, it, it obviously was horrific. So they spent a lot of time in this episode talking about the struggles of Alex Rodriguez, the fact that he's getting booed out of the building at Yankee Stadium, which I remember vividly. It felt like any time A-Rod, yeah. especially in 06, because 05, he won the MVP. He did not have a great postseason. He came back the following year, and the Yankee fans just let him have it. He never had a dull moment. They booed him after every at-bat. And I, I think some looked at Derek Jeter as a guy who maybe with the Jeter-like powers that he has could say, hey, stop booing him, maybe take it easy on him. And Jeter was never going to do that. And Jacko, I don't, I don't even think Jeter would have done that if he was buddies with Alex Rodriguez. Like if they were super, super tight and it was Posado, Mariano, or even one of the guys that is in the inner circle for Derek Jeter, that's not Jeter's way, man. Like Jeter got booed. Mariano got booed. The, 
Uh, the idea that Derek Jeter was supposed to do something about Alex Rodriguez and the treatment he was getting, to me, that's a whole lot to do. I, I get that A-Rod didn't get the results, but I, I don't know what you want Derek Jeter to do about that. I, I don't know either. And Jeter, you know, Jeter says his he, as captain, he saw it as like being the leader and he was going to lead by example, but he's not going to be like a rah-rah guy. He's not. And if you come out and say, leave Alex alone, that's going to be all over the back pages. That's going to just scratch at the scab. It's going to make it even worse. It's just going to exacerbate things. And it's not Jeter's style at all and ever to do that. Jeter's going to be himself. He's he's not going to be like, he's not going to come out and put his arm around A-Rod at third, you know, third base from shortstop and be like, let's love him. And, you know, let's face it, you know, they're, they're, I don't know how much of it is like after the fact that it's apocryphal or whatever. But people say like Mantle and Maris in 61, when it looked like Maris was going to break the record as he ultimately did. And people were like, Mantle's our guy. He's a Yankee. Maris wasn't a true Yankee. And people were rooting for Mantle. That was even worse with A-Rod and Jeter because the, whether the, to the extent the media hyped it up or to the extent, as I think we see in this documentary, a lot of it was real where Jeter did not love A-Rod. And obviously, if fans had to choose, Jeter was the Yankee, right? He's the true Yankee. He's the homegrown guy. He's the guy that's come through in the clutch time and time again. And A-Rod is perceived as this interloper. And if the interloper comes in and he produces and he does great things, well, we're going to love A-Rod and he's our superstar too. He's a true Yankee. When the interloper comes in and he's not doing anything, it's easy to boo him and turn on him. And when, especially when you're like, well, you're, you're the rival of our guy, Jeter, who we all love. That's not going to help things. And I don't, and I, and Jeter's one, it's pretty clear Jeter did not love A Rod, does not love A Rod. So it's not, but it's definitely not his style to go out and be like, leave A Rod alone. You know, he's a Yankee. Let's all, let's all love everybody. That's just not his style. And it's a lot to ask him to do, frankly, too. This episode is brought to you by hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, 
tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. How about that clip? And I remember this game because I was there. I was sitting in the third base load section. It was an afternoon game against the Orioles. That pop-up. I mean, mm-hmm. does that in many ways symbolize everything that was going wrong with the Jeter A-Rod dynamic? That like, like if looks could tell, like but could tell a story in any way. The look Derek Jeter gave A-Rod after that pop-up is dropped. He's like, dude, what the <laughs> what fuck, are we doing man? here? <laughs> what is going on? Right. Right. I mean, that's another one, you know, like instead of having all these great moments where things happen, it was like you had shitty moments like that. And it was like the whole A-Rod Jeter thing. It always played itself out. And poor A-Rod, you know, like I I don't know if he's, you know, I can't say he's unlucky. He's got more money than God and he's a good looking guy and he's had amazing opportunities and success and, you know, uh, the whole nine yards. But he he never just could like live up to Jeter's shadow, you know, like he just couldn't every moment on the big stage, he would like trip and fall, whereas Jeter would shine. So it's just almost like, I don't know, he's born under a bad star or something like just totally unlucky that like he gets what, you know, gets to be in the Yankees and their glory days, theoretically. And like he just constantly stumbles on the big stage. Just it's just it's it's. You can't really feel feel bad for him because he's had a life that most people would trade anything for. But it's got to it's weird. Like just when, when you look at Jeter, who's like the perfect golden boy and then A-Rod like can't get out of his own way, you know, and that was that was the epitome of it. Once again, like a simple pop up. These two guys that have not the greatest relationship, it should be a play a little leaguer can make. And what happens? No communication and bing, bang, boom, you know, and that gives the media a chance to blow it up some more. The media and Derek Jeter's relationship with the media is obviously prominently featured in this episode. And, huge, you know, Jacko, I think the quote, and I think it was from Joel Sherman, I wrote it down, nobody hid in plain sight like Derek Jeter. You know, like he's the captain of the Yankees. He is this larger-than-life figure. He's beloved in New York City. But when it came to Derek Jeter, sitting down after a game, there were catchphrases. He was always going to answer a question, but he was never going to give you anything when he answered a question. And he mastered that art of being able to play that game, let's be honest, for the duration from start to finish of his entire career. No question. And he would, and and I thought the interesting thing was they always talked about if they tried to ask him about anybody else, he'd be like, you got to go ask him. You got to ask him. Or he's like, oh, or, this is the first I've I heard of it. I just heard that. I, I <laughs> yeah. didn't know about that. No idea. No clue, which is really a smart way to handle it because, you know, I think he's he learned things. And like, you know, you had the example of Reggie Jackson, who who loved quotes and loved to be the center of attention and loved to play with the media. And he came off right on the bad foot right away when he said, I'm the straw that stirs the drink, you know, and that set off the clubhouse. And he had a bad, bad blood with Billy Martin and everybody else. Jeter was wise enough to know that, like, the amount of media in New York, be it radio, TV, the tabloids, the whole nine yards, it's better to give this pablum quote and just have it go away instead of, like, trying to blow it up and make it a bigger deal than it needs to be. Smart on his back. I mean, it doesn't move papers and it doesn't move product, but it was smart on his part to, to try to avoid distractions and controversy. But Derek Jeter still found his way into a controversy. And... I was a little disappointed, I'm not going to lie, Jocko, with his answer on the gift baskets because 
even though he's never going to admit it's true, I want it. I want it to be true. I love it. I, I, I think it's part of the, the aura and the mystique and the ridiculous nature of Derek Jeter. I, I wanted him to basically come out and say, yeah, yeah, we got a system. He wasn't going to do that. Nope. Uh, gut feel. Was he being honest about the gift baskets? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say he no, was not. I, I, now, do I think that it was like as manufactured of where he had people like put a gift basket together and when somebody left late at night or early in the morning, they were like, here's your gift basket? No. Do I think maybe there was some things that he was like, oh, thanks. I, it was great. Take this. Or how'd you like this? Or here's a ball for your brother or something. I, of course it is. There had to be some smoke to I mean, it had to be some fire to that smoke. People just didn't make that up out of thin air, right? As, as ridiculous as, the, as page six might be or the media might be, they just didn't make that up out of thin air. Although the woman who was the editor of page six, where she's like, we never made any allegations he was sleeping with these women. Okay. Come on. Yeah, come, on. <laughs> come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Let's get <laughs> But All Jeter, right. you can tell Jeter does not love the gift basket thing because he's talked about being at Starbucks and the guy's like, hey, I do the gift basket thing. And Jeter's like, you're a fucking idiot. Yeah. And, and you, you seem pissed off Derek about Jeter, it. Didn't love it. Who is right. like the most calm, cool, and collected person on the planet and always was snapping on somebody at Starbucks. Like, that's when you know, like, you're, you're striking a nerve. With that under guy. his skin. No question about it. Yeah. No question. Yeah. And this one is kind of like you could tell, like the you know the first half of this is about two first twenty minutes ish or about two thousand and four, and the rest of the episode is basically like him you know get, bringing out the old swords for the media and getting even even for perceived slights. It was all like I'm gonna like mow down the media basically for the rest and of the episode. They set this episode up. Now Wally Matthews did not look good in this episode. I mean, let's be honest, he looked terrible in this episode. The idea. Uh, of Derek Jeter being colorless and like some of the stuff that you knew the minute you play that for Derek Jeter and his family, they are going to destroy him. And clearly Wally Matthews didn't care because he's got to know you're making a comment like that in a Jeter documentary that is getting back to Derek Jeter. So Wally probably didn't give a crap about it, but it was a terrible look for him. Um, Now I think there's some of stuff that's in there where Matthews sounded like an idiot, looked like an idiot across the board. But then there's another part of the media members wondering, why didn't we get more from Derek? Like, I do think, Jacko, there's a balancing act between a guy who just comes across like a jerk and then other media members where they're basically like, well, I don't think we would get anything out of Derek because Derek wasn't going to give it to us. You know, like, I totally can understand that to some degree. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, I think a lot of it is complicated because it has to do with race. And I'm sure in Jeter's, you know, Jeter, I think probably had some difficulties being accepted by either the African-American community or the white community to some degree. Well, and they and I talked think about that with that. the Sheffield interview. And right, I remember, Sheffield and everything. I was I remember so that too. down on Sheffield for that. And listen, Sheffield didn't want to play first base. Let's forget about, let's not forget about that. Went out, uh, flames flames, flames the way of Joe Torre in that 2006 season and right. came across as a guy who had an axe to grind and put the captain of the Yankees front and center. Basically, his hate with Joe Torre, he brought Derek Jeter right into that. And if I were Jeter and the Jeter family, I'd be living. Oh, Absolutely I'd be living, living if he did that to me. And, you know, they're killing Andrea Kramer. And I think Andrea Kramer, although she may not have articulated it artfully, her whole point was that Sheffield's argument was that Torrey treated black players differently than white players. And she's like, but Jeter, because 
Jeter is an African-American guy, and he was Joe Torrey's teacher's pet. Torrey loved him, and he loved Torrey. So it's like, I think she was trying to point out to Sheffield, well, you can't say he treats black players negatively because he loves Jeter, and Jeter loves him. He's like, you know, that's that's his guy, Jeter, right? So that was the whole point of that. And then for Sheffield to say, well, Jeter's not black, I mean, that, that creates a whole host of other problems and just a can of worms that the Yankees didn't need. And yeah, if I was Jeter's family and Jeter, they, they seemed far too forgiving of Sheffield more so than I would be. I mean, you know, he cuts A-Rod, I mean, whatever in his mind, and it's his right to do whatever he sees fit. But, you know, he cuts A-Rod loose for some ill quotes in, in Esquire or whatever, and Sheffield, this seemed to be much more damaging to him personally. And, you know, I guess they, they respected Sheffield because he sat down with his family and with him and kind of came, you know, came clearer as to where he was coming from, I guess. But... That whole thing, I remember that. That was an uncomfortable thing. And you can't come out and say Joe Torre treats black players differently, but he's not a racist. Well, I mean, by definition, if you're treating people, players of different races differently, you're intimating at the very least, implying or outright saying that Joe Torre's a racist. So that that's a tough one to like walk back. And, and you know, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know. I, the whole This whole episode really made me uncomfortable in, in, in innumerable ways. Well, I totally get it. And look, I do get Jeter where he's coming from when he is in a position where he feels, oh, maybe I should speak on an issue or maybe I should, you know, get a little bit more into detail. And it's something that at that time, let's be fair on this, Jacko, the world and, you know, sports and society and the way they dealt with the media, the way they talked about whatever's going on, they didn't do that stuff. I mean, look across the sports. And I'm not just talking baseball. This is not just a rag on Derek Jeter for this. Look at no. the NFL. Look at the NBA. Look at the National Hockey League. You didn't have guys commenting on what was going on. And like, like at that time, that was peak war in Iraq. Did you yeah. have athletes coming out saying, oh, we shouldn't be in Iraq? And you didn't have any of that at that particular time. Few and far time. between. No. And a, a lot of this... A lot of this was a documentary that was filmed in 2021, I guess. And I think it was trying to look back at the as the world is now and the world of media is now and trying to project it back then onto the 90s or the 2000s. And it just it just wasn't it just wasn't done. then. you know, reporters didn't ask and players didn't speak up. And now it's a more politically active era for whatever reason. And players speak up more now than they did then. But, you know, because of because of branding and corporates and teams and everything else, a myriad of issues, players didn't speak up like they like they do now. And I, and I don't know if Jeter feels some reticence about that, that he wanted to have in the documentary of I, I had thoughts and I should have said more. But that just it just wasn't done at the time. You know, and it wasn't even that long ago, but it just wasn't done at the time to the degree it is now. They end this episode with the end of the Tory era. And, you know, Jacko, I was sad to see it end. I'm not going to lie. And I understood it was time. Like, the team was not getting better. They were getting worse. He made plenty of mistakes those last couple of years. But, like, they still were going to the playoffs every year. They still win in 90 games every year. It still, like, harkened me back to 96, 98, 99, and 2000. Like, when it, when they let go of Tory, I, I was upset, man. I wasn't crying like Susan. I remember that clip of Susan <laughs> yeah. hysterically crying, uh, being in Joe Torre's office after that Cleveland series. But were you ready for a new manager after 07? Yeah, I was. I loved Torrey. I yield to no one in my love for Torrey. I, I, he was great. He was the right guy at the time. But I think, at, you know, certainly in the in the rise. I mean, I, I never wanted him to get rid of Show Walter, and then I fell in love with Torrey. And you obviously can't argue with the results, but. I think after a while, when the guys hear the same voice in the room for too long, I think it gets stale. And I just think, 
you know, I don't know if it was new players or he was just, you know, getting tired or it was just time for a change. I, I wasn't I wasn't brokenhearted for them to make the change. I didn't love the way they did it because, you know, I think it wasn't really covered in the documentary, but I remember in real life. Cashman did it in some sort of passive-aggressive way, They gave I think. such a half-hearted like, offer. It was like, we'll right. bring you back, but there's incentives on how much right. you win. There's no guarantees. Which, it's which like, you want deserve. him to be the manager, or you not want him to be the manager. Right. Come on. Classic Cashman, Aaron Boy, worked for the Steinbrenners, disgusts me. But, um, yeah, I wasn't, I thought it was time for a change. And I was hoping they'd bring in Mattingly, you know, who had been a bench coach for a while there. And, I, I you know, it was between him and Girardi, and they liked Girardi's binders or whatever. See, but, I didn't want Mattingly. I'm going to tell you why. Because I didn't want to ruin Because it he could had. end bad. Yeah, that was my thing. Like, you're a manager. You know how it's going to end. Like, Girardi, right. you know, it's 96. It's the triple. But, like, you can fire Joe Girardi. How do you fire yeah, Don Mattingly? I, I was worried about that, but I love Don Mattingly so much and just to see him back and, you know, maybe they go get a ring as him as with him as the manager and that would have been phenomenal. But yeah, I, I wasn't, I thought it was time for Joe to go when he went. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it the way they did it. Like I would have let him go out some, to some degree in his own terms, but I, I thought it was time for them to make a change. Yeah. And they end this episode, Jacko, with the defense of Derek Jeter, which is always a hot button topic for the advanced stats community. And in 2007, 2008, it was pretty clear that Jeter's defense, the throwing and not getting to as many balls as he once did, was becoming a point of conversation. And I didn't know that there was this confrontation between Brian Cashman and Derek Jeter, where basically, you know, Brian Cashman's giving him information. He's not hearing it from anybody else. And Derek Jeter's like, yeah, I thought he was full of shit. You could tell he dislikes Cashman. I mean, that's pretty clear from this oh, documentary big time. too. Big time. I mean, this this big documentary time. is like Jeter is he is grinding all the axes, and he is he's getting even with everybody who has either slighted him or perceived slights. So it's like a Rod Cashman and the media. He's like this. I'm settling all, in the Corleone fashion. I'm settling all family business. You know. So it's pretty clear he does not like Cashman. And they, they had problems from the time of his arbitration, which he didn't care for Cashman. There's a lot of stories about times Cashman told him about other shortstops who were better than him. And, you know, when they when they negotiated contracts and then now to go to him with his defense and say, we want you to tra tra uh, change your training regimen and work more on first step and flexibility and get a new trainer. You could tell Jeter did not love that at all, at all. And Jeter had somebody that was going to light a fire under him for what was to come, which I'm sure is something we'll talk about in uh, episode six and potentially episode seven. But Jacko, this is going to be a tough one, man, because I didn't really like this episode. There's not a whole lot to either. like here. It's tough to find heroes. It's, it's tough to find a favorite moment. I, I guess if I had to give you a favorite moment right out of the gate, it would probably be the gift basket. And the idea of Jeter telling the guy off about the, the gift basket like that was the only only semi moment of levity. The Red Sox series, the hell with that. No, I can't give you anything. I don't know that I can come up with an MVP. I mean, I guess I guess to some degree the media is the MVP just because they're the focus of it hugely. But 
I don't know. I didn't really have a favorite moment in this episode. It's funny that he turned to the guy who thought he'd get a high five for doing gift baskets of his own and calls him a fucking idiot. I can only imagine going to get coffee and I think I'm going to be the super, I'm going to be a hero to Jeter and he calls me an idiot, a fucking idiot. I, I don't know what I would do with myself after that. That would be but, a um, tough one to recover from. Not that's a lie. tough one to come back from. Like you tell your buddies, hey, I ran into Jeter at Starbucks and he called me a fucking idiot because I'm giving gift baskets to my conquest. He didn't care for it. I feel yeah, like you I couldn't didn't, admit I don't know. that to your friends. Like, I, I don't yeah, know. You wouldn't. That's a tough right. one. You that's just be like, one. I saw Jeter at Starbucks and that's it. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I didn't love this episode. I don't, you know, there's the, there's not really an MVP. There's not really a favorite moment. And it's, this is a tough one. This is a bridge. I hope to better, better episodes and, and happier memories in the, in the coming episodes. Um, I do have a Corleone moment though, without a doubt. And it's the idea of Derek Jeter saying, Hmm, you'd have to ask him or, I didn't see that. First you know, like that's just very aware of the situation, knowing he's aware, but not giving you anything in the process. Like that's kind of that's kind of boss. Cheater esque. Yeah, definitely. Or saying, you know, that Cashman is full of shit. Like I my defense is fine. My off off the um off season training is fine. I don't need anything new. I don't need anything different. And for you know, for the record, we did the recap on episode four, and I referred to Jorge Posada as the Sonny Corleone. I had not seen episode five. I let the record reflect. I did not steal that from Mark Feinsand, who talked about in the media when they said Tori was the godfather, Jeter was Michael Corleone, and uh, Sonny um, Posada was Sonny, and they didn't say who Fredo was, although the illusion clearly was that it was A-Rod. A-Rod is Fredo. That's a problem. Yeah. Uh, you know what, though? A-Rod has a better than Fredo ending, if we're being fair. He does. He and does. we're going to see a lot more of that in episode six. I can't think of an MVP here. Is it a media member? It might just be a media member. By just the, the media like, in general, because they were such the Sherman focus of it. it. But I really don't, don't want to give it any. I hate the idea of giving an MVP in this episode. It sucks. Yeah, there was no MVP. Nobody, anything about 2004, there's no winners. There's just no winners. Nobody Listen, deserves to win. That's about, that's about it. He might be <laughs> directly right. the MVP of this episode. There you that's go. It. He's the MVP. We'll give it to he, the Red he Sox. Can it. It's all nation. Yeah. He can write another book, you know? I forgot how much I disliked everybody involved in that Red Sox team from Theo to Lakino to everybody. Ugh, God. Ugh, but that's to their cringe. credit that I dislike them, I guess. So. Yeah, and uh, that Jeter is playing golf sign will uh, oh. never sit well with me. Maddie, who should have been traded in the A-Rod trade. Ugh. Keep, Ugh. Yeah, do more, do more steroids, you piece of shit, right? Nice. Exactly. Exactly. Jacko, we will be back for episode six, and I promise you this. It's going to be a lot happier. I promise, right. I promise, I promise. There's, there's no way to go but up. We got two of these left. Good work by Stefan. Episode six that's coming up next, and it's going to be a lot more fun. Later, guys. See ya. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. 
Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.